Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing our discussion on begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. And like I mentioned earlier, this kind of deals with the whole paragraph about Christ, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Uh, And that's important to stress because we're about to talk about Hebrews. And one of those phrases comes from exegesis on Hebrews. And so we talked about... Um, explaining generation. We talked about the correlative names. We talked about being born in the likeness of God as an ontological son. And then we talked about the connection between uh, the personification of wisdom, John 1, Proverbs 8, and the generation of um, wisdom or uh, wisdom as a type for Christ. So now we can talk about Hebrews. And Hebrews was one of the most... um, I thoroughly enjoyed looking at this text of Hebrews. I've looked at Hebrews 1 quite a bit um, in the past, especially in relation to, ironically, Arianism. Uh, But I've always skipped down to uh, the citation of Psalm 110, right? Um, My Lord said to my Lord, you know, sit beside me, uh, which is a great proof text of the deity of Christ in chapter 1. But we're going to go back up to um, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through Three for a little bit, and then we're going to move into its quotation of Psalm 2 7. Um, so, first off, and of course, this is going to presuppose that you listen to the last two episodes. And so, if you're kind of lost, I'd recommend you go listen to those. I'm just trying to build upon what I've already put together instead of rehashing everything every time. Um, I And I also wanted to avoid putting everything in one episode. It would have been a really long episode. We're talking, what, you know, 90 minutes worth of material. Um, and that's not favorable. So, um, first let's get to Hebrews one. We can open up our Bibles to Hebrew one and we'll go ahead and read the the passage first. So long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I will stop there for right now. So we find out that the Son is contrasted with the prophets of old as a better revelation of God. Second, we discover that the Son is through whom God created the world in verse 2, and to whom all things are appointed to. He is the heir of all things. Um, third, we read that he is the radiance of God's glory in the exact imprint of his nature in verse 3, uh, which explains the first point, that divine sonship that we've been talking about. Fourth, the Son upholds the universe and is the mediator between God and man and in power, verse 3. Um, and then, of course, whenever we get to verse 4, which we'll read now, um, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is superior to the angels because of the name he has inherited. So something that is important to note is that uh, the author of Hebrews places sonship prior to creation. So there's a presupposing of the son and the son is the means of revelation. Um, And then we learn that the son is through whom God created the world. 
and the world is created for the Son, which is consistent, of course, with what we find in Colossians 1, 15 through 18 and John 1, 1 through 18. So we find sonship, and the Son is spoken of as the means by which God creates all things, and the Son is appointed the heir of all things. Uh, and the Son being the rightful heir of his natural father makes sense. It's natural. It's ontological sonship. And this ontological by nature sonship is furthered in verse 3. He, that is the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, this radiance can be understood as active radiation from a source, or it can be understood as passive, such as like a reflection. Now, it's worth noting here that um, many commentators favor the passive um, understanding, but there are many who also hold to the active understanding, uh, along with the Nicene writers who understood it as active. And Cockerell states, um, as the radiance of God's glory, the sun is the outshining of who God really is. Although evidence from contemporary usage is indecisive, the close identification of the sun with God in the immediate context prohibits reduction of radiance to mere reflection. Um, so this active meaning is where the early church would actually come to see the phrase in the Nicene Creed, light from light, alongside other texts where Jesus is seen as the light of the world, right? Um, so it's within this context of active radiance of God's glory, the outshining of God that generation comes from. Within this text, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature cannot be separated because they're both descriptions of the sun. Ellingworth points out that this describes alongside the radiance of the glory of God, the essential unity and the exact resemblance between God and his son. And Cockerell further expands with the Greek word translated as exact representation was used for the impression left by a seal and for the impress, reproduction, and representation of a coin. So the term signifies an exact correspondence between the impression and the seal that made it. And the sun, then, is a perfect imprint of the very being of God. And these are two complementary expressions. The radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, which preserves the distinctness between the Father and the Son while affirming that this finality of his revelation is based on his identity with the God that he reveals. He is the outshining of the nature of God because he is the same essence of God. Um, this thrust of the statement is made clear whenever we consider the term nature, um, he is the exact imprint of his nature, and this is God's essential being. Now, what's quite interesting is that in connection with our previous discussions on the confusion of language within the Nicene context between hypostasis and usia, the term for nature here is actually hypostasis. Uh, and so we know that this will later be used to designate the persons of the Godhead, while usia would be um, to speak of God's nature. Uh, and that's just a fascinating tidbit here. But the Son's unity with God the Father in this passage logically explains how the Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, and we learn in verse 2 that it's through the Son that all things come into existence. So what we have is we have the Son existing prior to creation, being described of as the same nature of the Father, being the active radiance of the Father, and being categorically, not creation, but a creator. 
And the Father is the source who radiates the Son, because the Son is the radiance of God's glory. Um, as the Son naturally radiates light, so does the Father radiate his Son, as we've said many times. And this, as Matthew Barrett states, quote, captures the heart of eternal generation. The Son is the resplendent effulgence of the glory of God. And Barrett properly states that words like radiance and imprint not only distinguish the Son as Son, insinuating his divine origin, but affirm his identity with the divine nature itself. While we might distinguish light from light, radiance from glory, we do so knowing full well one is from the other, inseparable and indivisible, father and son alike, holding the same nature in common, end quote. And the author of Hebrews seems to be using similar language that we find in Second Temple wisdom literature. Uh, we talked about the wisdom of Solomon two episodes back, and that's one of the apocryphal works. But the wisdom of Solomon in chapter 5, and I believe it's verse 26 or 27, I don't, I didn't write it down, um, states, for she, that is wisdom, is the radiance of eternal light and a spotless mirror of the activity of God and the image of his goodness. So our discussion on Hebrews in relation to generation doesn't actually end here either. But whenever we move to verse five, we read, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, this is actually a citation of Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14, and this is applied to the Son, obviously, uh, who is presented in this verse as being um, superior over the angels. Now, in Psalm 2, we read about an individual telling how God gave him an inheritance, that is, all the nations, and God called him a son. Uh, this psalm, in its original context, speaks about the Davidic line and his monarchy, and of course has messianic language. The second citation, an individual is called a son by God, and thus both texts present this father-son relationship. But within the immediate context of these texts, we find them being metaphors of divine sonship or assistance for the king. So it's obvious here at the point that the author of Hebrews is interpreting these texts as being about Jesus the Messiah, which really is not too much of a stretch for us in the, our context. So discussion centers around where is the psalm placed within time, particularly related to Christ. So when the text says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, um, the, the debate really centers on what is meant by today. Now, some say that it refers to the incarnation or the exaltation of Christ after the resurrection, or eternal generation. While there are many viewpoints that I have examined, um, Ellingworth's point, whenever he cites Moffat, is favorable, I think. He just says, quote, when we ask what the author meant by today, we are asking a question that was not present in his mind. And I think that's, that's pretty fair. But Guthrie states, what then is the temporal imagery communicated by the psalm? What does it mean that God has begotten the Son today? These cannot be references to bringing the Son into existence, since the references in early Christian usage is associated with the exaltation to the right hand, and the Son has already been praised as the Father's agent in creation of the world in verses 1-2 and also in uh, 1-10. Thus, Jesus was considered the Son prior to creation itself, nor can the use of the psalm here be considered a statement of adoption as Son, for Jesus is referred to as Son with reference to the Incarnation, Rather, 
the early church understood Psalm 2-7 to refer to Jesus' induction into his royal position as king of the universe at the resurrection and exaltation. In these events, God vindicated Jesus the Messiah and established his eternal kingdom. God becoming the Son's Father then refers to God's open expression of the relationship upon Christ's enthronement and interpretation that fits the old context well. So as noted by Guthrie, um, the citation cannot express the notion that the Son was created or that begottenness of the Son is at the Incarnation. In fact, this text can't be speaking about the Incarnation because in verse 6, we are introduced to the Incarnation. And when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. So that excludes Incarnation from this um, discussion, I believe. Um, so this announcement in relation to the enthronement makes far more sense within the particular context after, after having read verse 3, because verse 3 ends with, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, um, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. And so that makes sense here. Uh, the psalm is also applied in Romans 1.4 and Acts 13.33 in relation to the resurrection. And so the question is, well, what does this say about the eternal relations of the Son? Because it's already established that there's a relationship with the Son before creation, and that this is a public expression of that relationship post-resurrection. And so because verse 2 has described the Son pre-creation, and because you are my Son comes before I begotten you, alongside with this idea of the psalm being penned prior to the Incarnation anyway— the interpretation of the text has eternal implications. So the argument would simply be this, is that because the Son was declared as the Son who was begotten at his exaltation, but this psalm was penned before the Incarnation and Sonship existed before creation, that this is an eternal reality. So today I'm limited on time in terms of recording, so I'm going to pause my recording here. And so whenever I come back, if it sounds a little bit different, it's because I had to Wait a couple days before I could pick up and go into Colossians. Well, everyone, I am back. And within the few days that I had to pause recording, I have still continued to revise, edit, and expand this section. Um, so that's that's a thing. So I said that we were going to pick up in Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 um, presents one of the key Christological texts within the New Testament, right? Uh, the text can tell us a lot about the Son, uh, beginning with Paul's claim that Jesus is, quote, the image of the invisible God. Um, it's no secret that in the Old Testament, God cannot be seen, which is why we have various uh, theophanies, that is where uh, God presents himself in some visible form. Yet, while God is invisible, we find that Jesus is described as the image or living image of the invisible God. Um, so yeah, so as with Hebrews, such claims are closely linked to this idea of the personification of wisdom, um, as the wisdom of Solomon states, for as she, that is wisdom, is the radiance of eternal life and a spotless mirror of the activity of God and an image of his goodness. Further, there are allusions to Proverbs 8 here, um, as we read that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, in, first, uh, in Colossians 1.15, um, by which all things came to be. And if you read Proverbs 8.27 and 30, you find that it's by wisdom that all things come to be, who is considered preeminent over creation. 
Uh, so this text was utilized by the Arians and those who supported Nicaea, both of them. Uh, the former, the Arians, use it to assert that Jesus was the first created creature as per the idea of firstborn. While the Nicenes uh, would say that verse 16 doesn't allow for Christ to be in the ranks of that which is created. And the reason being is that he is the means by which all things are created. So if there's any doubt regarding the usage of firstborn, um, and like, well, what does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn? It should be understood that this is a title designating preeminence, not birth order. Um, and some would interpret this as being birth order in terms of um, he is the first son, and now we are sons in adoption, but he's not firstborn in the sense of being created. Um, regardless, this idea of preeminence is found within the Old Testament. You see this with um, David being called the firstborn, and we know that he was the youngest. Um, and you see this in Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven, where he is designated firstborn. So David is likened to a son. He receives his rule and his inheritance and the rights and privileges of sonship. And then Paul presents Christ as the image, wisdom, king, and creator. So Christ is the image of God, who thus is in the likeness of God and reveals who God is. And this really should bring to mind what we see in um, things like John 1.18, or even Hebrews 1, where he's the exact image and he reveals the Father. Um, and furthermore, whenever you think about being created in God's image, um, there's a parallel there that we discussed with Seth and with Adam and with God and Christ. And so this is where, unlike the Son, we are mere creatures created by God, while Jesus is the firstborn, the heir of the rights and privileges, or the preeminent image of God over all creation, placed before creation as creator. And you see this in verse 16 of Colossians. So Athanasius and the Cappadocians would then point out that to be God's image is to be of the same substance of the Father. He is the one who proceeds from the Father and orders all things and holds them together. And you can see this in Athanasius against the pagans, uh, 426, for example. Gregory the theologian says, quote, He is called the image because he is consubstantial with the Father. He stems from the Father and not the Father from him. It being the nature of an image to copy the original and be called after it. But there is more to it than this. The ordinary image is a motionless copy of a moving being. Here we have the image of a living being, indistinguishable from its original to a higher degree than Seth from Adam, an earthly offspring from its parents. And that is Theological Oration 30. So here it was, again, another idea of sonship, substance, that brought out this concept of eternal generation. And now we have one more section for this episode, which I just have to say it because it's going to drive me crazy if I don't. I've actually recorded this, came back, deleted it, and re-recorded it. So there are two gaps in this recording from times where I've stopped and come back after a few days. And I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever done that. And the reason why is because I was trying to decide which parts of this aspect were essential and non-essential because I think it's good for contemporary Christians on the ground floor to know what I'm about to say and that'll be fleshed out but you also don't need to go as into the weeds as I did prior. Um, so I did have a, an extended discussion on monogamous and Johanning literature on the website. I'll link that in the description if you care to. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the Gospel of John and 1 John 4, 9. The Greek term monogamous 
and the debate about how it should be translated. Traditionally, it was translated as only begotten, and in the contemporary setting since the 1950s, it's been translated as only or unique. Um, so that's the debate, the modern debate about how it should be translated. And underneath this debate is a secondary debate that kind of hides. It's whether or not this term, as it was used in John's passages, was utilized by the church to teach eternal generation of the Son. And so this secondary issue actually intensifies the former point. It puts more weight on the discussion. Now, whether or not we decide to ever use John's literature for um, eternal generation, this discussion is going to keep going because there's still contemporary works being put out, working through how we should best translate this term. So rather than going into the details surrounding translation, which I did a little bit in my first draft of this section, I instead want to demonstrate briefly why this debate as it pertains to eternal generation is misleading for the contemporary Christian. And that's the thrust, because whenever I was looking at forms and seeing people discuss this, too much weight was being placed on monogonase. Um, so we're going to get into that, and I'm going to explain why. Um, I just said what I said. So if you don't understand where the debate is, uh, all you have to do really is open up a text like John 1.18 or John 3.16 in a contemporary version versus a King James version. Um, the John 3.16, for example, in the ESV would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. While in the King James version, it would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So the question is, should the Greek term underneath that, monogonese, be translated as only begotten or only unique one of its kind? And then many translations will supplement or supply son in the translation as the ESV did here. And that's one of the critiques against the contemporary translation um, by um, Charles Lee Irons. Anyway, so the discussion can really be traced back to Westcott um, and Dale Moody whenever he was defending the Revised Standard Version's translation of Monogonese, in which he adopts the contemporary translation we know now as only or unique. Uh, what's important here is that for Moody, this was not an attempt to undermine eternal generation. He never questions eternal generation. He never questions the preexistence of the Son or the deity of Christ. Instead, he just makes a case linguistically that the term monogonese should be understood as one of a kind or unique. So the plot really thickens because after time went on, people started hinging their adherence to eternal generation on this single term. Um, in contrast, others don't believe that generation is limited to or proven by the single word monogonese. To demonstrate this, we have um, some record of Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem in his first systematic theology, which is a big systematic theology used in universities all around the United States and probably internationally. But in his first volume in Appendix 6, he includes a discussion on why the term should not be translated as only begotten. And he states, if the phrase begotten of the Father before all worlds and begotten not made were not in the Nicene Creed, the phrase would only be of historical interest to us now, and there would be no need to talk of any doctrine of the eternal begetting of the Son. But since the phrase remains in a creed that is still commonly used, we perpetuate the unfortunate necessity of having to explain to every new generation of Christians that begotten of the Father has nothing to do with any other English sense of the word beget. It would seem more helpful 
If the language of eternal begetting of the Son, also called eternal generation of the Son, were not retained in any modern theological formulations. So aside from this unfortunate assessment regarding ecumenical confession in the Nicene Creed of eternal generation, you see that Grudem, in his second edition of his systematic theology, now affirms eternal generation. And he says, quote, The evidence and arguments produced by Irons, that's Charles Lee Irons, have convinced me that monogamous, when used of God the Son in the New Testament, means only begotten. As a result, I have removed Appendix 6, where I have argued against only begotten, from the edition of Systematic Theology. In addition, I am now willing to affirm the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son, also called the eternal begetting of the Son. End quote. So here's the crux of the issue. In light of Grudem's shift, based on the work of Charles the Irons, of this one term and how it's translated, everyone who follows Grudem and learned from Grudem and were trained under Grudem and other scholars like Grudem are left wondering, does eternal generation hinge on the translation of a single Greek term? Now, on the flip side of that, people who have disagreed with Grudem have put a lot of weight still into monogamous being understood as only begotten for the same reason that it is the basis for eternal generation. And so this isn't just Wayne Grudem. This is, for whatever reason, our contemporary setting has been taught that eternal generation, I don't know where, why, or how, hinges on only begotten being in the text. But Fred Sanders notes in his discussion on Grudem's revision, traditionally, of course, Christian theology has drawn the doctrine less from the five only begotten passages in John and more from places like John 5, Hebrews 1, and others. And hopefully by now in this episode, you've seen that. Now we're talking, they would look at Hebrews 1, they would look at Colossians 1, they would look at John 1, they would look at Proverbs 8, they would look at Psalm 110, they would look at Psalm 2, they would look at uh, Micah 5.2, they would even look at uh, John 5.26. Um, you can debate the John 5.26 passages to the cows come home. The people have been discussing that, but the point being that for patristics, the five only begun passages were not the crux of the matter as they are for us now. And this is crucial. This, this is really what should be stressed. This is what I am trying to stress that this single term is not what determines eternal generation. Now, Kevin Giles takes the view, and I think I pronounced his name as Giles in the last episode. Um, I can't remember if I cited him. There's been too many spaces in between recordings, but anyway, he takes the view with contemporary scholars that monogamous ought to be translated as only or unique. But while he holds that this term should be translated that way, he is emphatic that the doctrine of eternal generation is not based on the single term. In his book on eternal generation, he seeks to demonstrate that, quote, the Greek-speaking church father saw these texts that used the word monogamous as highly significant, not because they thought that the word meant only begotten and thus spoke of the son's eternal generation, but because they understood it to mean unique, this designation set Jesus Christ apart from all others. What made him utterly unique, they concluded, was that he alone is eternally begotten, not made, end quote. Further, he says, quote, At this point, I need to reiterate the fact that while the semantic meaning of the word monogamous is unique or only, it implies begetting because all children are begotten. And in the case of the Son, is speaking of a unique begetting because the Son alone is eternally begotten of the Father, end quote. Uh, and so... On the flip side of that, Charles the Irons and his contribution on the translation issue has taken the other end on both counts. He, he says first that the term should be translated as only begotten 
And second, uh, he seems to imply that the term is absolutely crucial for eternal generation in the early church and for today. And looking at these other writers, Matthew Barrett, he defends eternal generation from the traditional text of Psalm 110, Michael 5, 2, Proverbs 8. Uh, but he also puts weight into monogenes and as only begotten. But Barrett and Robert Leatham both point out that monogenes is using context of familial significance regardless. Leatham says the context assumes a biological metaphor is applied to God. He's called the father and his offspring is called the son. Of course, the language is not literal. There is no mother. Nevertheless, it is familial to its core. So where... Lethem and Barrett, I believe, strike their balance in, you know, in opposition to Irons is, is found when Lethem says, quote, while the doctrine of eternal generation does not stand or fall in this one word, it is important to recognize that the claims that it has no bearing on the question are greatly exaggerated. So basically, um, this one word does not determine eternal generation, but it still has a role, which I think is balanced. That's fair. And if that's Matthew Barrett's position, then... I'm all for it because he clearly outlines his arguments from the traditional texts. Now, McDonald's analysis is helpful here. In fact, his whole his whole paper is absolutely fantastic. I'm going to put the bibliography for this episode above the standard bibliography for Thunicea so that you can get to these links. If you could, if you have time, go read his his blog posts uh, where he writes about the usage of monogamous in John's literature, or you can listen to it. It's only like 45 minutes long. But basically he states that um, he maintains that only son is the sufficient translation. That only son is how monogamous is used, and that iron's movement to only begotten is too far. It loads the term with theological weight that isn't necessarily there. He states that only child is all that is needed here, and the absence of siblings is the key factor in that. Every child is begotten. That, that's a given. Um, it doesn't need to be imported into the definition. Indeed, the definition is the absence of siblings, not the begottenness, which is by necessity true of every child only or otherwise. Further, he says, like Irons, I would point to the overwhelming body of Greek textual evidence that suggests that whenever it refers to a person, it designates a child without siblings or intends a child with siblings to evoke the association of an only child. I differ from Irons in three main but important respects. Firstly, I think only begotten ties us to a Latin trajectory that places weight upon the begotten part of the phrase more than the Greek term itself does. Secondly, that the use of begotten reads more into the text of John than what is warranted of a doctrine of eternal generation per se. Thirdly, um, and the subject of my recent SBL paper, neither monogamous as a term itself nor the Johannine texts prove as much direct grounding for pro-Nicene doctrines of eternal generation as Iron suggests. So his argument is it should be translated as only son, only begun is too loaded, and it's a Latin trajectory that Jerome had to do his best with, basically, and that monogamous was not um, a key factor for grounding eternal generation for the patristics, the, the pro-Nicene, uh, Athanasius, Basil, um, the Gregories, and just as well that they did not appeal to the text of John in that way. In fact, in his paper, he makes a great case just pointing out how they use it as a designation, almost the same way that we would say God the Son. So as we would say God the Son, they would say the only unique Son, right, um, to designate that. And it did, of course, um, specify that he was unique because he was begotten. So that all said, my conclusions on this are that the patristics, as demonstrated by uh, McDonald and Giles 
do not base their understanding of eternal generation on the five texts of John. They use the term monogamous. Not only did McDonald and Giles demonstrate this well, but others who have discussed the pro-Nicene Trinitarianism have also rightly pointed out this exact point, that there are other texts that they were appealing to. Um, there's a lot to talk about how Athanasius, in particular, spent a lot of time on Proverbs 8. Um, so I think that this should be stressed more than anything else. This is the underlying point of this whole thing. Um, we should not be ignorant of this um, going forward in our theological you know, undertakings. The doctrine of eternal generation does not hinge on monogamous or its translation in the text of John. And for the record, those texts in John in particular are um, John 1.14, John 1.18, John 3.16, John 3.18, and 1 John 4.9. Eternal generation does not stand or fall on how that word is translated. That's the key. That's the principle. Um, I find that this misconception to be problematic theologically and going forward. Theologically, this is a problem because we do not base systematic theology on one proof text, let alone a single term. And the patristic's understanding of eternal generation was the synthesis of imagery applied to Christ. They properly synthesized the data to get a picture of Christ. Additionally, those early church writers appealed to many other texts for generation. Um, now, why is this a problem going forward? Well, it's a problem going forward because it's shaky ground. If scholarship moves one direction or another on monogamous proper translation, we may soon have those who have just affirmed the doctrine of eternal generation, those who have just affirmed the Nicene Creed, moving back to denying it again. This is particularly devastating from a historical standpoint because we're ignorant of how um, we got to eternal generation, but it's also devastating in that it can mislead the contemporary generations on the subject. When I was first learning theology and I kept hearing eternal generation, I left with this conclusion that it is speculative because it's based on these proof texts that the translation's faulty. And so having been in that boat, I, I see the ramifications of that and I think that it's dangerous. So we, we need to be more historically aware. So with both of these points in mind, I find it challenging to also think that the ancient Greek speaking patristics based their crucial Nicene formulations on a misunderstanding of the single term. And unfortunately, that's kind of what people have suggested. Um, that said, importing the English translation back onto the Greek word is problematic. From my observation, often when individuals are trying to defend the translation of monogamous is only begun, they'll, they'll just assume that English translation as if it's equal to the Greek term. Ultimately, it's a fallacy of begging the question. Um, but I'm also tempted to think that importing of only begotten on monogamous is ultimately a way to find a proof text for that ancient doctrine. And I think that this occurs because they want to hold to the universal faith and to the ancient creed uh, of what defined Christianity, right? And they, they want to be orthodox, but they, they don't have the the same framework as the early church did on this. And so... Perhaps they're looking for that proof text, or perhaps they want an easy way to say this is only begun. But um, I mean, that's that's a lot easier, you know, appealing to John uh, one eighteen, whereas if it says only begun, is a lot easier than trying to show well Hebrews one, well Colossians one, etc. But what are you gonna do? Um, that's just not how we do theology, or rather, that's not how we should. So, in looking at monogamous, I have found McDonald's insight to be great. Um, 
basically uh, the emphasis is on only child. There's a lack of siblings of the son, and that's what makes him unique. He's the only son of God. Um, Irons even nearly gets there himself, but just moves down the line to the traditional beyond and plates too much weight on the term. Um, and so I think that this rendering of only son almost bridges the gap between both camps of this debate. Firstly, it retains the idea of only or unique element while making sense of the obvious supplying of sonship in these texts, um, because that's inevitable, except where for some reason the ESV doesn't on John 118 and it's problematic. But secondly, it lines up with the usage of monogamous with the church fathers on account of the son's unique relationship as a son begotten, not made. So in other words, Monogonese, as the only child, still places the son in his proper place in relation to his father without importing or loading eternal generation into the term and interjecting eternal generation into John's text. So while being only son would add to the synthesis of the father-son unbegotten and uh, begotten conclusion, it allows John to still stand on his own. That, that's where I get. Um, so with that, we'll look at two texts in John and I'll be translating monogamous as only son. So looking at two of the five texts, you can begin with uh, 114. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the glory which we have seen is the glory of a father's only son. And here we have a clear designation of a familial relationship, right? So according to Harris, the thrust is Jesus without spiritual siblings or equals. No one else can lay claim to the titles of Son of God in the sense that it applies to Christ. Uh, further, this is the glory that belongs or befits the Son only. Uh, this connection with this description and what we have examined thus far becomes really natural, right, with Hebrews in particular. So verse 18 in John's Gospel presents us with, No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is himself God, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John 1.18 parallels John 1.1, 1, 1, put them side by side in it. You have the two bookends of the prologue. And this verse here illuminates that the Son's relation to the Father is eternal. He is at the Father's side. Um, while this likely refers to a permanent presence with the Father post-resurrection, we cannot ignore that connection with John 1, 1 through 3. Um, as Michael points out, yet there is no now in the sentence. And so the accent is more on the nature and status of God, the one and only, rather than a time reference of this pronouncement, which would be post-resurrection, you know, in terms of when John's writing. The son is said to be at the father's side, or literally, or traditionally, in the bosom of the father. And this is an idiom of uh, closeness or nearness. It's that picture of uh, John, the disciple, laying on the breast of Jesus at the fellowship meal. Uh, so the son is in this close, near relationship with the father in eternity. And the son, who is the only son, is in this closeness, is in is the one who makes the invisible God known. He communicates divine knowledge or expounds or exegetes the father. That's where we get the term exegesis from. The imagery presented in verse 14 and 18 of the son not only forms a coherent picture of the Son as the image and the radiance of the Father, that is light from light, God from God, but it also paints an image of the unique relationship between the Father and the Son. So here we reach really the crux of the issue of monogamous. 
Monogenes, regardless of its translation, implies a unique relationship between the Father and the Son, and it adds to the historic doctrine of eternal generation, but it is not the basis for it. While there are many more discussions that could be had on various texts, as John 5.26, Micah 5.2, and Psalm 110, uh, this will lay the foundation for you for further inquiry, um, because this is kind of the ground floor. So let's get into applications, and then we're going to wrap it up. So when speaking of applications, I think we, we kind of made one application already. That is that um, we shouldn't see monogamous as the only basis for eternal generation. But I think the best way to apply this doctrine is to recognize the importance of this doctrine because it's seen as unimportant, irrelevant. Uh, it can be dismissed. It's speculative, right? Um, so on the most basic and sobering level, we need to pause and recognize that this doctrine was recognized by the church universal before the great schism of 1054. This doctrine is affirmed in the ecumenical Nicene Creed of 325, the Creed of Constantinople of 381, the Chalcedonian definition of 451. Further, it's placed in the so-called Athanasian Creed of the 5th century, and even in the post-Reformation Confessions of Westminster uh, and the London Baptist Confession of Faith. There should be a great caution and throwing out 2,000 years of Christian theology, especially when this was considered an ecumenical, essential Christian doctrine. This tendency to throw out this doctrine of eternal generation as a relevant speculation in light of this historical awareness is, is particularly grievous. So, so why is eternal generation important? Simply because it preserves the eternal distinctions between persons in the Godhead while also preserving the unity of persons in one essence. So against the Arians and those who would subordinate the Son, Eternal Generation pointed out that while the Son comes from the Father, he is eternally from the Father as a Son sharing in the likeness of his Father. That is, he is begotten, not made. The Son and the Father are eternally distinct, the former is begotten and the latter is unbegotten, yet equally divine and eternal. Just the same, this eternal distinction rejects modalism. Uh, the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. They are eternally distinct in accordance with their personal properties. In rejecting tritheism, eternal generation shows us that the Son cannot be considered a second deity, as the Son is of the Father, and the Father is the Father of the Son. They are one in nature, one in will, with inseparable actions, and the Son is in the likeness of the Father. So, while many new and contemporary models of eternal distinctions have appeared, um, many of which have not stuck a landing, eternal generation is the standard Nicene model. Um, Josh Malone states, the doctrine of eternal generation is the pro-Nicene pathway by which this mystery is conceptually traversed, the sharing of life between the three persons. It asserts that the Father and Son are eternally related by origin alone, begetter and begotten, not by essential differences since they are the same undivided essence. This is what makes a divine person a person. The doctrine specifies that the two are not primarily distinct by historical accomplishment. Rather, history is an echo of the eternal relations. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Romans 1.4. Nor are the Father and Son eternally distinct by their roles, for these are willingly undertaken in the economy. The Son's external work is willed, temporal, particular to the Incarnation, and rooted in His eternal begetting. So, all with the exception of point three, 
in light of our discussion here, I would echo also Matthew Barrett, who argues, if we, one, consider history's redemptive structure, the father sending the son, two, pay attention to what the names father and son intrinsically mean, three, mind the Yohannian context of monogamous to confirm Jesus as only begotten son, and four, observe the many diverse metaphors and titles attributed to Jesus, what we will discover is that eternal generation is implied and inferred in legions of ways. Strip the scriptures of this concept and it is impossible to understand what it means for Jesus to be called son, at least in a Trinitarian, biblical, and yes, distinctively Christian sense. Remove the pillars of orthodoxy and we no longer can understand what distinguishes the son from the father, nor why the father would send his son to redeem a fallen humanity. So what distinguishes the father, son, and Holy Spirit is their personal properties. The son is eternally generated. The spirit is eternally spirated. And then we'll talk about the filioque clause probably later on. Um, so this is all to say that the Son became incarnate because he was the Son from eternity. And further, the Father is distinct from the Son, while the Son is the image and exact imprint of his Father. The triune God is not modalistic, tritheistic, and nor is the Son a created creature. We can better understand the adoption we have as children of God and the being united to the eternal Son of God. And 45 minutes in... I don't understand how it's 45 minutes because I'm pretty sure my last draft was about the same length and I cut significant amount. I thought I did. Anyway, I hope that this was helpful. I hope that it's still coherent, even though it was recorded in three different periods. And uh, going forward and through Nicaea, it should be pretty smooth sailing until we get to procession. Um, everything else is more straightforward than these particular concepts um, because these are more foreign to us. We're, we're ignorant of them. So I hope that Again, this is helpful. Uh, check out the bibliography on the landing page for this on the website, ChristSecure.org. Um, I'll have two different bibliographies, uh, one just for eternal generation, and then underneath that, the standard through Nicaea uh, bibliography. So God bless you all, and have a wonderful, wonderful day. And if Christ is the Cure has blessed you, please consider becoming a patron and supporting Christ is the Cure so that we can try to make this more part-time. Um, I put in the hours, but... Um, I would like it to be more self-sustaining so that I can continue to put out free materials for people, including those PDFs. I want to make more PDFs for uh, churches, um, pastors, and congregations utilize Christ Secure materials for teaching and for facilitating a love for God, for His Word, and for theology. And um, I'm extremely blessed to be in that position, and I and I would love to have the time, effort, and the resources to do that more. Um, and so, if you have been blessed, please pray about it, but consider becoming a patron. And that's it. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful day.